this is a great test of what matters more in warfare, mass or quality. This is a crucial test of that theory, that long-running debate. And my own view cards on the table is that Russia is going to struggle to turn its manpower advantage on paper into an effective battlefield advantage. Because look, it has a lot of bodies. It can literally dragoon these people into service. Can it equip them? Can it arm them? Can it give them armored vehicles? Can it give them officers to lead them? Can it train them? I'm really skeptical that it can do that. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. For the last weeks, I have been watching the protests in Iran with great admiration and even increasingly a little bit of hope. It's easy in those situations to forget the first principles. And the first principle here is just that the Iranian regime is a oppressive, theocratic regime, which stops its citizens from flourishing and particularly stops women in Iran from flourishing. And that the people who are protesting against this regime, who are risking their lives in order to win a chance to try and build a better life, deserve our admiration. And insofar as we can do something, our solidarity. I also want to address two questions, which a friend of mine with roots in Iran put to me a few days ago. The first is about what the prospects for these protests are. Now, let me say very clearly that I'm not a scholar of Iran. I'm not somebody who knows that much about the country. And so it's hard for me to predict what's going to happen or give a likelihood that the protests may succeed. What I will say is that the political science literature indicates the conditions under which uh, protests against authoritarian regimes can succeed. Widespread disappointment, intense protests are certainly a danger sign for such regimes. But perhaps the most important question is whether uh, a split emerges within the regime, a split between hardliners who want to crack down on protests or who want to preserve the power at any cost, and softliners within the regime, people who say, perhaps this is an opportunity to change, perhaps we're not willing to bring out the tanks and kill an ever larger number of people in order to sustain our rule. So as these courageous protests continue, that is what to look out for and what to hope for. The second question that my friend posed me was about why Western media are talking about Iran so little. Why this doesn't seem to be a major news story. Why this isn't on CNN all the time, every day, given the importance of these events. And I think that there are two somewhat depressing explanations of that. The first has to do with the way in which partisanship has fried our brains so that the only thing that gives us dopamine, the only thing that we click on, the only thing that we really want to know is something which speaks to the evil of the other political side within our country, something that speaks to the culture war, something that allows us to feel wonderfully about ourselves and terribly about everybody 
else. And the protests in Iran simply don't speak into that partisanship in that way. The other part of the same reason is that I do think that there is some ill-conceived reluctance to stand particularly with the women and the feminists of Iran on parts of the left within the West. I think there is a sense that some Muslim women within the West are discriminated against for wearing the headscarf, and that somehow makes it difficult or icky or complicated to cheer on women in Iran fighting for the right not to wear a headscarf. But that is simply a conceptual confusion. In a free society, people can decide freely whether or not to wear a headscarf. So we should absolutely stand in solidarity with any women who might be discriminated against or who might experience threats in the streets of Berlin or the streets of New York because they wear a hijab. But that should not in any way restrain us from full-throatedly supporting the women in Iran who want to be able to choose not to wear a headscarf and have all the freedoms and opportunities that their brothers enjoy. My guest today is Shashank Joshi. Shashank, the defense editor at The Economist, is an old friend of mine. We went to graduate school together and have been in conversation for a long time. He's been intensely reporting on the war in Ukraine since the beginning of the year. And we had a conversation about what is happening on the battlefield at the moment and what kind of future we might expect for the war. We talked about whether Europe is going to continue being solidaristic with Ukraine. We discussed the prospects for regime change or at least a fall from power of Vladimir Putin in Russia. We discussed the prospect of Russia using nuclear weapons. And we also tried to understand what this moment looks like from the perspective of countries in Asia and Africa. How nations from India to Nigeria see the Ukraine war and what that means for the prospects of freedom and democracy in those countries in the coming decades. This conversation really taught me a lot about the state of international affairs at this moment, and it helped me put a whole bunch of different pieces of the puzzle together into one coherent picture. Shashank Joshi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a huge pleasure to be on and a huge pleasure to be on with a very old friend. Yeah, we've been in conversation on and off for, well, I'm going to reveal our age, about 15 years, I think, at this point. So I think it's getting on 15 years. And I think as time has gone on, we've become ever more aware of the vast swaths of knowledge we don't know. So our conversations <laughs> were probably much more ambitious at the beginning, but let's see if we can replicate that. So listen, you've been covering Ukraine a lot over the last months. I feel like there has been these dramatic shifts in public perception, perhaps in reality on the ground in this war. On the first days, most commentators were expecting the Russian army to march through the streets of Kiev imminently. Then it looked for a while as for Ukraine was being incredibly successful. Then there was a phase in which actually Ukraine was 
we on the defensive and it looked as though Russia might win. Now for the last few weeks, you know, Ukraine has had some amazing successes on the battlefield. So stepping back from that back and forth a little bit, where do you think we ultimately are at? What can we expect in terms of the relative strength of the Ukrainian and the Russian armies and what that might mean for the ultimate outcome of this war? I think, Yasha, what's really important to remember is that the Russian lines were in danger of collapse. Had Vladimir Putin not done what he had tried so hard to avoid doing for the whole war, which is mobilizing manpower from across the country. That was an indication of failure. It was an admission that the war was going very badly. And now that it's happened, he's still on the back foot. He's still being chased back. Indeed, as we speak in Luhansk province in the east, in Kherson province in the south. But I will reflect on a couple of things. And one of them is that, let's remember here, Russia still sits on about 15% of Ukrainian territory which is huge. And not only that, but it sits on Ukraine's access to much of the Black Sea. It controls much of the breadbasket of southern Ukraine, Kherson province, big industrial areas in the east. So I think Russia is losing this conflict, but that doesn't mean it's lost. And it still means it's in a territorially strong position. What is really going to determine this is who comes out stronger in the spring, you know, March, April. And the reason is weather. The Ukrainians are doing really well, but their attacks are probably going to slow down. Barring some kind of surprise collapse of the Russian lines, they're going to slow down. It's going to get wet. It's going to get muddy. When it's muddy, you can't get your tanks off-road, so they have to get on the road, which means they can be spotted more easily. You can't get drones up in the air because, you know, it's foggy, it's wet, it's difficult to see. People have to spend more time just surviving, keeping warm in these terrible nighttime weathers. So what's going to determine this is who comes out stronger in the spring. And presumably on that point, the mobilization that the Russian army has engaged in or Russia has engaged in for the last days is really going to matter because I assume that you're taking these people, many of whom, you know, need real training in order to be effective. And as long as the Russian lines hold through the winter, Russia now has four or five months to get them ready for combat. Do you think that the recent Ukrainian successes are reason to be very optimistic about Ukrainian capabilities in the spring as well? Or do you think because of the arrival of these reservists, the situation may just look very different in the spring? This is a great test of what matters more in warfare, mass or quality. This is a crucial test of that theory, that long-running debate. And my own view cards on the table is that Russia is going to struggle to turn its manpower advantage on paper into an effective battlefield advantage. Because look, it has a lot of bodies. It can literally dragoon these people into service. Can it equip them? Can it arm them? Can it give them armored vehicles? Can it give them officers to lead them? Can it train them? I'm really skeptical that it can do that. And the idea that a sort of sullen 16-year-old pulled off the streets of Vladivostok and told, hey, you're defending the motherland in our new frontiers in a place you've never heard of before in Kherson province. How are these people really going to fight? I think the Ukrainians are fighting for survival. And not just that, but they're being trained by us, right? Literally where I'm sitting in the UK, we're training up huge numbers of Ukrainians, helped by trainers from across Europe, from the US, from other places, from Australia, Canada. And I think that advantage is going to make itself felt in the spring if, and here's a really big if, we keep giving them weapons. That is absolutely fundamental to anything they can achieve at the beginning of next year when the fighting season begins again. So I guess there's two big political question marks here. One is about the extent of Western solidarity with Ukraine, which is important for Ukraine to be able to continue to pursue this war. 
And we obviously have a hard winter coming up in which energy prices are going to be very high, in which it's possible that certainly parts of industry and possibly even private households are going to struggle to get the energy they need. And all of that might give an opening to political forces within Western Europe and the West more broadly who want to stop supporting Ukraine as strongly as these countries have all in all done for the last months. The other big political question mark is about the fate of Vladimir Putin. It's about whether the deep dissatisfaction with Putin and certainly with the mobilization that he has initiated in the last weeks may lead some people in the regime to try and get rid of him. And they might now also have four or five months to do that. What do you expect here? I mean, both of these are speculative questions, of course, but what's your best estimate of a range of outcomes we might get on these two crucial political factors that will help determine the future of this war? I'm really optimistic on European cohesion. You know, back in the summer when Ukraine was on the back foot in the east, it was being battered. I was worried and I was worried about European energy in particular. In the UK, we're going to have a really tough winter with gas prices and gas supply as for a lot of other countries. But overall, I think we're in a much stronger position than anyone had a right to expect back in the summertime. So take energy to begin with. European governments, Yasha, have spent about $500 billion to insulate citizens from energy price spikes. It's not going to solve the problem, but they've basically thrown money at the problem to try and insulate their citizens from feeling the effect of this. Across the continent, gas storage, which was always a problem, it is 89% filled, more than 89% filled, well above the average for this time of year. Now, okay, we have a huge problem next winter and the winter after that. This could be incredibly miserable, pretty bleak, actually. But who knows what happens by the time we get there. For this winter, I think we're going to get through it. And if you look at actual you know, Europeans and what they think, take Germany. In late September, so a few weeks ago, 74% of Germans told pollsters that they basically favoured maintaining support for Ukraine despite rising energy prices. And that was up from 70% in July. And this is Germany, right? This is not the most Russia hawkish country out there that is chomping at the bit to topple the Putin regime. And if that's the mood in Germany, you can imagine what it's like in other places. So overall, I think European cohesion is looking really impressive. The midterms, yes, could be an issue. But even if you look at elections in other countries, the Italians, Yasha, you know very well, the Italians, thank God, they managed to find the one far right leader in Europe who is not pro-Putin. So thank you, Italy. You know, you found us a pro-NATO, uh, anti-Putin, far-right leader. Uh, I don't think we could have asked for more than that in the current circumstances that we're in. If we have to have a far-right leader, I guess it is good to have one far-right leader in Europe who isn't in Putin's pocket. Or this is not an endorsement. This is just a consolation. <laughs> Help me understand the basic, just hard facts and questions here about energy. So Essentially, as I understand it, you know, a lot of European gas, in particular in countries like Italy and Germany, came from Russia, and these countries seem to be incredibly dependent on Russia. What has changed and what is changing in just those hard facts of that dependence? How well are efforts going to build LNG terminals, to build other ways by which, you know, two or three years from now, we might be able to get gas into European households when we need it? Well, there's short-term efforts and there's long-term efforts. And in the short term, the absolute priority is just trying to substitute for Russian gas in any way we can. And Norway is a huge part of this, right? It's really interesting because Norway, you know, this is sort of inside baseball for European security, but Norway is not a member of the EU, as a lot of people might think it is, right? It's outside the European Union. It's inside NATO. And it occupies this really interesting position, I think, in some of these debates. But it's replaced 
the Russians as the EU's biggest supplier of gas. It's looking to try and boost gas production to try and ease the spike and ease the energy demand. And this is really important right now because we have just seen, for example, an attack, as many of us know, on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines that run through the Baltic Sea. They weren't actively providing gas to Europe. They had been suspended and shut down in various forms. But the reason that attack really mattered was because I think it was a shot across the bow that says, we took out these pipelines, we can take out the Norway pipelines. And if there is a disruption to those pipelines, that would be much, much more difficult for Europe. That would be a much bigger problem. And so just to draw out the implication here, you're assuming that it was Russia that was behind these attacks and that there was a warning sign that Russia sent to these European governments to say, hey, we have a capability of disrupting these pipelines. At the moment, these pipelines are needed and we made it small explosions so we can easily fix it. But if we want to, we can disrupt the one gas pipeline from Norway that actually is keeping Europe alive at the moment that you really, really need. Exactly. And look, I've spoken to a lot of European officials in recent days and weeks. I was in Helsinki not long ago, and I spoke to a lot of others. I can tell you, Yasha, every single senior European official I spoke to said they haven't got hard proof at the time that we're speaking of Russian culpability. But let me tell you, not a single one doubted that it was anything other than Russia. I know we've had some more wild speculative theories that it could have been the Americans trying to sabotage the pipeline or, you know, the Poles trying to drive a wedge between the Russians and the Europeans to drive escalation. I think that's nonsense. You know, Occam's razor, it was the Russians. You know, David Trump used to say that Donald Trump is not a fascist, Donald Trump golfs. Whatever you think of that theory, and David Trump has actually changed his mind about this, I think, I find it really hard to imagine Jake Sullivan, who was a guest on this podcast once, and Joe Biden greenlighting this attack on European gas pipelines. It just feels so much out of character with the mainstream of thinking and foreign policy in the Democratic Party. And I don't mean to be naive about this. Obviously, they are running big drone campaigns against terrorists in parts of the world and so on. It's clear to me that parts of the U.S. security state certainly are less than polite. But there's just something about the huge political gamble and risk involved in undermining the infrastructure of America's closest allies in this kind of way that I find it very, very hard to see the current administration greenlighting. It doesn't fit with what we know of their approach to escalation in this conflict, which has been very focused and very cautious and very incremental and steady and ramping up support to Ukraine bit by bit whilst trying to manage all of the other escalatory dynamics around that. So I totally agree with you. It would require some kind of personality transplant for the National Security Council and the president for me to believe this was an authorized CIA operation. But just to finish on energy, actually, it's not just gas, it's not just a pipeline. Europeans are also reliant on others like Qatar and Algeria. And of course, you know, this is why the decision by OPEC plus to effectively cut production and raise oil prices was such a blow because we had hoped they would ease energy pressure right now. Instead, they've tightened it. And I think what this shows us is lots of things. It shows us that energy is still so fundamental to Europeans in a way that it's not for the Americans, right? America is energy independent by and large. Europe is not. And this really changes the way we approach crises and the freedom of maneuver that we have in these places. And I think it also creates this horrible tension between the sort of liberal foreign policies of Europe and the liberal values inherent in the Ukraine war, fighting for a democracy 
democracy against a state that is increasingly fascist, unfortunately requiring us to go cap in hand to some pretty unsavory Middle Eastern regimes and other regimes to say, by the way, please, would you bail us out of our energy predicament so that we can keep fighting the fascists? Yeah, and it's amazing that in the first days of a war of the Biden administration, when both Saudi Arabia and to Venezuela kept in hand and said, please, please help us. That is not a great position to be in. Help me think one step further on the energy question before we move on to the situation in Russia. So at the moment, the European gas storage facilities are relatively full. We can hopefully rely on this pipeline from Norway for there's some fears about what would happen if Russia tried to take it out. What's going to be the situation in two or three years? What about these LNG terminals that are being built? What about some of the discussion about new pipelines across Europe that might help to improve gas supply? Sort of, you know, is this a problem that's solvable in a few years? Is this a problem that's only solvable in 10 or 20 years? When will Europe actually have decreased its reliance on Russian gas, not just on an emergency footing, but on a more sustainable footing? This is, I think, a really difficult question because, first of all, it gets into these problems of some big European divisions, right? So what we see, for example, in France is that there's a strong emphasis on saying, look, this is our opportunity to take advantage of this crisis and turn it into an opportunity and move towards net zero. Let's emphasize nuclear power. And then, of course, you have Germany, which, although the debate in Germany is changing because of coalition politics within Germany, you don't have an ability to do that, right? Nuclear power is still post Fukushima. We can't move in this direction. We have to just simply kind of work around this. We're not willing to make the big present investment. And then in other countries, you again have sort of politics getting in the way. So one interesting example is the Netherlands. Now, I'm not an energy person, Yasha, so I'm happy to be kind of corrected. And I say that up as a caveat. But my understanding is that the Netherlands in Groningen has Europe's biggest gas field, which is almost dormant and effectively switched off because of the coalition politics within the Netherlands. They could turn that on and immediately dramatically transform Europe's energy prospects. And yet the coalition politics of the Netherlands doesn't permit that. So the status that Europe will be in in a few years doesn't just depend on infrastructure choices, you know, whether we can plow enough money into LNG terminals, lock in contracts. And by the way, our ability to lock in long term contracts is challenged by the fact that other countries don't want to do those because they hear us saying, well, we're going to get off oil and gas completely. We're going to get off fossil fuels. And so they say, well, why would we do business with you? Why would we lock in multi, multi-year contracts that may make us more vulnerable to this? But it's also down to those big European debates that are going to have to play out within the EU and in other places. But I think, to be absolutely honest, there are some European governments that will be hoping, let's hope we don't get that far. Let's hope the war ends, maybe Putin goes, we can go back to business as usual by next Christmas and save our citizens rebelling on us because we haven't given them enough gas to keep their houses warm. Yeah, and I would hope that the European political elite has finally realized that if it wants to be sovereign, if it actually wants to be able to stand up for its values, it needs to decrease its reliance or end its reliance on Russian gas, not just in the short term, but in the medium and long term. Now, hopefully not in a way that requires short-term crisis, but that surely must be a strategic imperative. But since you mentioned the second question I want to get to, which is this hope that perhaps Putin might somehow be gone. Look, it's really hard to predict the downfall of authoritarian regimes more broadly, and it certainly is difficult to predict when particular dictators are replaced by their potential successors. But how realistic do you think it is that there's going to be some real change in the Russian government? And how much is that going to matter? So even if Putin is replaced by some other political figure or by some oligarch, how likely is that to actually change Russia's posture in this war? 
such great questions and so unknowable. But, you know, I would have a few months ago have sort of dismissed the idea that Putin's going to fall as being overly optimistic, trying for us to sort of find some deus ex machina out of this crisis. But actually, I look at this now and it just looks like Putin's support is really looking cagey. He didn't want to mobilize for a reason. And that reason was he knew a war that he could prosecute while sparing his population and keeping them quiescent is going to look very different once people and young men are hauled off to be fed into the meat grinder. And that is already provoking protest, particularly in poorer areas among ethnic minorities in places like Dagestan. But I think that what's happening is people who were willing to tolerate the conflict in Russia because it didn't really affect them are actually going to find that the war is touching them in interesting ways. So to give you an example of this, look how many people have fled, right? 200,000 Russians, as we speak, have fled to Kazakhstan. 70,000 have fled to Georgia. 66,000 have fled to the European Union, even though Latvia, Estonia, Finland have basically shut their borders. We are witnessing a mass exodus. And when we hear the Russians talk about 300,000 reservists, I don't believe that. I think this is going to be a rolling campaign of mobilization, as many as it takes, as long as it takes to prolong this war, because he hopes that for the reasons we've outlined, European cohesion will crumble. So I think that his position is quite shaky, much shakier than we've presently thought. And look at the astonishing attacks on him from people who were effectively Kremlin loyalists, right? Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of the Chechen government. We've seen some incredible stuff. We've seen attacks recently on... For example, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister in Gerasimov, but that's only because people can't attack Putin directly. They're sort of shields for that. Now, what replaces him? This is a really interesting question because you look around him. I look at his war cabinet, the people around him. You know, they're all ex-KGB men, Botnikov, Narishkin, Shoigu, all these people. They're in their late 60s and they're all heavily sanctioned. So it's not as if they're kind of liberals in waiting who can hit the reset button the minute he's off the scene. So I think some of the scenarios we have to think about, there may be shock scenarios where he leaves and there's chaos and there's anarchy. It's possible we in Europe have to be prepared for it. But I think just as likely would be kind of a post-Khrushchev scenario being eased out by his cabinet gently, quietly. And then you have a few years of change, you know, or the post-Brezhnev transition, which took several years to get to a Gorbachev-like figure who could really reset relations with the West. So I think we have to not pin our hopes on a transformative change as soon as he's gone. And I guess it might be tempting to distinguish between two different outcomes of such a change, right? One is about the war in Ukraine, and one is about you know, the future of Russia itself, which I care very deeply about as well. Now, I guess I would be somewhat more optimistic about the impact of a change in government on the war in Ukraine, because you could imagine, you know, if the reason for that change in government is, you know, that Putin really has become deeply unpopular because so many people now fear being drafted, which we've seen in so many great powers in the past lead to deep rebellions against the government, and really what the mandate of a new person is, is just get us out of this mess, I could imagine some kind of maneuver for Russia to end the war, to say, all right, we're going to claim the gains we have, perhaps we have some kind of low-level conflict where we just defend them, perhaps we come to some kind of negotiated agreement that the Ukrainians can somehow live with, and then let's get out, right? I don't think that's guaranteed. It's also possible that the new person, you know, vows to prosecute the war more effectively and more brutally than Putin did. But it seems to me, and correct me if that's naive, but there's some real hope for that. What's a very different question is, 
is this person going to give up the oligarchic control over the Russian economy and the political repression it requires to keep that going? And that seems to me to be highly unlikely. So I guess I would say that even in the case of a change of government, I continue to be pessimistic about prospects for freedom and liberal democracy in Russia. But I might then, under that circumstance, be cautiously optimistic about a de-escalation in this terrible war of choice. I think that's completely reasonable. The regime has united around this conflict, but that doesn't mean they wanted it. That doesn't mean they were hungry for it. And the upside of an end to the war would be huge, right? I think Russia's economy is due to contract by about a third next year. And the longer this goes on, the greater the impact of the enormous brain drain that is crippling Russia's economy, the sanctions that mean that it can't get semiconductors and other absolutely vital components, and the reorientation of its energy and economic relationship to the East. China, in which it's a junior partner, the opportunities for a successor regime to try and just stabilize the situation and to enjoy a kind of ceasefire dividend would be enormous. But I think the problem nonetheless is that Europeans are no longer naive. I really don't think they are. I think that the idea of going back to normal with Russia is over, even for the German government, which is perhaps the most deeply vested in its economic model of cheap Russian gas and its political model of sort of its own Ostpolitik with the Russians. That's all finished and done. So you're still looking at, you know, a withdrawal, perhaps a sort of, you know, easing of the violence. But Russia's going to find that it's not going to have Europe willing to welcome it back into the European security order. It's going to be a really isolated, resentful Europe. And I think the thing that I think of historically is the kind of stab in the back myths that can develop in countries that have lost wars, in which have sort of withdrawn from them with humiliation, and the ugly nationalism that can fester under those circumstances. I do worry a little bit about that. There's one more big question mark in this war, and it's the scariest one. It is about whether or not Putin or one of his successors might be willing to use nuclear weapons if Russia's back is really up against the war. How likely do you think it is that nuclear weapons will come to play in this conflict? And what would that look like? Would that be some use of tactical nuclear weapons, which essentially is a sort of symbolic breach of a very important taboo, but doesn't transform the basic dynamics of a war? Or are we talking about mass atrocities within Ukraine, similarly to when nuclear weapons were used at the tail end of World War II? Or are we talking even about a very real chance or a significant chance of a nuclear conflagration between Russia and the United States? What we must remember is that this is not the first time a nuclear-armed country has considered using nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear-armed country. Douglas MacArthur pushed for it in Korea. Richard Nixon considered it in the Vietnam War in order to try and coerce the Vietnamese to negotiations and defeat. Uh, indeed, the Bush administration even toyed with the idea of it in case Saddam used biological weapons in 1991. So this is not some kind of completely alien circumstance. Putin is absolutely desperate, much more desperate than all of those American leaders were in those campaigns I've just mentioned. And his personal survival is staked on this conflict. And while we tend to think of nuclear weapons in the context of mutually assured destruction, a nuclear country versus nuclear country, this is different because Vladimir Putin and the Russian state is not vulnerable 
to Ukrainian retaliation. Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. So for all of those reasons, as the Russian lines begin to collapse, as defeat looks possible, I do worry that nuclear use is a possibility. I really worry about it. And I have grown more worried about it as I've seen Vladimir Putin's speeches, particularly his speech on September 30th, when he announced the annexation of four Ukrainian provinces, because he redefined those as Russian territory. He implied that he would use all available means, which is a code for nuclear, to defend Russia's territorial integrity. In other words, the newly annexed territories. And most ugly and chilling of all, Yasha, you remember that phrase he used? He talked about America setting a precedent in 1945 in Hiroshima. That's a weird thing to say, unless you're sort of trying to communicate the message that you might be threatening nuclear use. Now, if it happens, I would imagine it would be very likely to be uh, limited or tactical nuclear use. In other words, not a strategic intercontinental ballistic missile aimed at a city, but a small, low-yield nuclear weapon, you know, 5, 10 kilotons that would perhaps be targeted on uh, an empty piece of territory. Some people have suggested Snake Island in the Black Sea, maybe a Ukrainian military base that would be designed not for battlefield advantage, but for psychological shock to say, I am willing to break a taboo that has stood since 1945, and that shows you how seriously I take this. And if you don't negotiate, or you Europeans don't stop sending weapons to Ukraine and make the Ukrainians talk to me, who knows what I'll do next? Maybe I'll take out a city. So in other words, this would be coercive use. What tempers my gloom is the knowledge that he has so much to lose from that so much to lose, not just the military retaliation that would very likely follow from the US and its allies against his army in Ukraine, but also the end of his relationship with the Indians and the Chinese, the huge economic damage that would result from that. And in addition to that, the sense of Russia as an absolute pariah. And for those reasons, I think not only that he would think twice before using nuclear weapons, but I also think the people around him the people who may have to help authorize or transmit nuclear orders, like Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, or Valery Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, would also be potential breaks, not guaranteed breaks, but potential breaks on that kind of process. But I absolutely don't think it can be taken for granted. And that's why I think sending the Russians a signal that you would meet with severe consequences and more importantly, I think, working with the Indians and the Chinese to make sure that they are sending those signals is so important right now at this stage of the conflict. Wow. So even on the best case scenario, a relatively positive case scenario here where there is a change of leader in Russia and the new leader does pull Russia out, you're saying, well, that person may then come to be blamed for the loss of a war in ways that might further fuel Russian aggression in the future. Well, think about Gorbachev, right? Think about how Russia has remembered Gorbachev and the low opinion in which he's held by so many elite Russians who felt that he effectively lost the Cold War and then compounded their humiliation and misery. And I worry that in the circumstances of withdrawal, Russians would think, hey, we've left Ukraine, we've ended the war. Come on, surely we can go back to how it was. And Europeans will think, you know, no, you committed something resembling genocide in parts of Ukraine. You committed the Bucha atrocities. Hand over your war criminals. Have a reconciliation and truth committee. Commit to never doing this again. Commit to rebuilding Ukraine. And then maybe we can talk. And that mismatch of expectations between a defeated Russia that feels it may have made a goodwill gesture to the West and a Europe that will be really scarred by the impact of this campaign. I think that that could be a really toxic relationship in ways we haven't fully appreciated yet. 
You always want to cheer me up, Shash. You've talked about the relatively cohesive support for Ukraine in Western Europe, in Central Europe, of course, and in North America. And I have to say that this is perhaps one of the few positive surprises of this year. I would have been skeptical about the extent of solidarity that these countries would muster, and I think we've done better than many people feared. The negative surprise on a related topic is the extent to which many countries around the world have sat on the sidelines in what is very clearly a war of choice, even though Russia has invaded the sovereignty of an independent nation, a nation that it had in many ways colonized in the past, the way in particular that many countries that have been colonized by Britain and other Western states in the past see this is not as a anti-colonial war in which Ukraine is standing up against a colonizing power, but rather as a kind of rebellion against Western power and its supposed colonial influence today in places like Eastern Europe. Help us explain, you know, how governments feel in countries like Kenya or Nigeria or Ethiopia or India or Pakistan. And tell us a little bit as well about the extent to which they are in tune with their populations. Is it really that public opinion around the world is on the side of Russia or feels that there should be a pox on both the houses? Or are there political incentives for heads of government at play here that don't fully reflect what the wider view from ordinary citizens in countries around the world is? Well, sadly, I feel that the ambivalence towards the war, if not outright sympathy for Russia that one sees in a large segment of the global south is very much in tune with what ordinary people believe. It's not just an artifact of these countries and their governments. I would point to several factors here, Yasha. One of them is just straightforward self-interest, right? Sometimes that can be dependence. If you think about the Indians, the Indian army depends for its equipment on Russian arms, ammunition, and resupply. Without Russian assistance, it would be in real trouble. So you know, if you're India, even if you felt, and they don't, but even if you felt this was an utter abomination and an atrocity and Russia deserved condemnation, you'd hesitate because to do so would be to risk having your weapon supply cut off. And this would produce the kind of outcome that you're arguing we don't see, where the government sits on the sidelines because it realizes it can't antagonize Russia. But perhaps a lot of ordinary people would say, hey, we're on the side of Ukraine. And it feels as though that's not the case, but there is a much deeper ambivalence about the war in Indian society as well. Oh, there is. If you want to see an example of your scenario, the a leader who's pro-Russian, but the people who are less so, I suppose you could look at some of the European cases like Hungary, right? Viktor Orban. I don't know the Hungarian polls, but my suspicion is that the population is considerably less pro-Russian than you would see in many other places than Orban's actions might suggest. But in India, yeah, it's not just government self-interest. There's also a deeper ideological aspect to this, which is, I would say, twofold. One of it is a kind of outright sense of sympathy for the Russian narrative, that the arrogant West and NATO has expanded right up to Russia's borders, has provoked it, has been hubristic since the end of the Cold War. There's very much a sense of kind of sympathy for that narrative. It's anti-American in part, but it's anti-Western. And it's a sense of what the Russians capitalize on very well, which is a kind of sense of multipolarity, right? The sense of a multipolar world, which the Russians say, do you want a world dominated by the Americans and their lackeys and their imperialist running dogs in Europe? No. Well, hey, look at us. We're standing up to this. And that resonates with Indians, for example, who spent the Cold War effectively being lectured to by the Americans and they didn't like it. But the other aspect of it 
is a little bit more subtle, I think, which is a sense of the world is changing and you need to catch up with it, that Europe and America are not the center of the world anymore. A few weeks ago, the Indian foreign minister, Jay Shankar, had a very interesting comment. And he said, what Europe needs to realize is that you know it can't have the attitude that the problems of Europe are the problems of the world, but the problems of the world are not problems of Europe. And what he meant is, when China was pressing us on our border with troops and surrounding us and provoking us, where were Europeans? Were they standing up for us? No, now they have a European country invaded, and they think of this as a kind of global apocalyptic problem for which we all need to drop our various things and rush to their assistance, even if it means energy prices spiking and it means our people going hungry. Well, screw that. That's the attitude, right? And I think that that's quite powerful. And we ignore that at our peril. If we just write it off by saying, ah, it's these bunch of kind of, you know, ideologically unsound Mexicans and Brazilians and Indians, I think we miss the real sense of grievance and the sense that, well, they have to be more attentive to our problems because this is not the days anymore when Europe was the center of the universe. So let's broaden that question because I've long thought and I've argued in print a number of times that when we think about the future of democracy in the world, it's tempting to think about the United States and Italy and countries like that. But if we want the 21st century to be a democratic century, we need to make sure that people uh, embrace the values of freedom and democracy in Nigeria, in Kenya, in India, in the countries that are going to have huge population growth, be a huge part of a global population, have increasing economic might, increasing political power. And I'm genuinely torn in my assessment about how likely that is, because I do think that citizens in those countries don't like dictatorship, that they, in their own words, would say that they care about democracy, that they want to live in democratic systems. And at the same time, I do think that this strain of skepticism about what they might perceive as a Western notion of individual freedom and liberal democracy goes very deep. What do you think it would take to make sure that these values, which in the essence, I think, are not Western values, which in the essence are universal values, actually come to have universal purchase in the 21st century? Well, Yasha, you've written a huge amount about illiberal democracy, and you understand the trends there much better than I do. I'm really ambivalent about this, because on the one hand, I absolutely share that sense of concern about liberal values and democratic values are profoundly under threat. And on the other hand, I also, from a geopolitical perspective, understand that a number of our would-be allies in this are very uncomfortable when we frame the struggle against Russia or China in those ideological terms. And I don't just mean here nationalistic governments like India. I mean even a country like Japan. Actually, if you talk to Japanese officials, what's interesting is they do not couch the problems they have with China and the problems they see in the Pacific as being the ones that Joe Biden identifies them as being, a global struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. They kind of get spooked when they hear that language. And I find that really interesting. Even a lot of Australians feel very uncomfortable about that. And why do they say that? Well, one of the reasons is they feel if countries like Indonesia and other countries in ASEAN and other countries in Asia are being told this is about democracy versus authoritarianism and you must pick a side. They hear that kind of hectoring and they say, well, the Chinese are not asking us to choose. The Americans are asking us to choose. And it makes it more difficult to enlist these middle powers in a strategic coalition against China. The way I think about this also with a country like India is 
we sometimes just need to think about the lowest common denominator, the practical steps we can take in trying to defend liberal values. And in that, it's not about European liberal democratic values being instantiated perfectly. It's about a more basic question. If, let's say, a country like Sri Lanka, or, you know, pick your small island country in the Indian Ocean, is going to set up a smart city with CCTV and monitoring and data and electronic payment, do we want a system that is set up by Huawei, the effective agent of a totalitarian dictatorship that is creating a techno dystopian, you know, future? Or do we want kind of anything but that, even if it isn't up to European Union standards of data privacy and GDPR? And I think with a country like India, we can all agree we don't want a Huawei dominated future in these countries. Even if we don't agree on a million other things, we may disagree on, you know, privacy rules. We may disagree on things like individual citizen rights, but we can all collectively agree we don't want the Chinese wiring up these places to turn them into kind of Beijing light. And I think that's what that contest for liberal values is going to look like. Pretty ugly and pretty messy and unsatisfying, but maybe more practical than a big, you know, lofty ideological battle waged at that level, if that makes sense at all. That does make sense. But let's distinguish here about two different things, right? One question is nearly sort of strategic comms question, right? Like, is it helpful or unhelpful to frame what's going on in Ukraine as a struggle between dictatorship and democracy? And, you know, I think on the substance I'm torn about this. I think there's some real merits to that description, but also some real limitations on strategic comms. Like you, I'm somewhat skeptical that that's in fact the way to you know maximize the number of allies we have. But I guess I was asking a more fundamental question, which is, you know, which way are those countries going in terms of how they will conceive of themselves and the animating values 25 or 50 years from now? And I know that I've lobbed seven extremely hard and broad questions at you. But since you've answered all of them expertly and insightfully so far, I thought I would make the eighth one even harder. Where will the global South go in 50 years? Nice and easy, Yasha. Let me consult my notebook and find the eighth bullet point that will answer that question. Well, Shash, if you didn't want me to ask difficult questions, you shouldn't have said in a class we took together in graduate school, watching Champions League on some really complicated setup on your laptop, shouting yes when there was a goal for your team, you know, be called on by the professor and give a perfect takedown of whatever somebody had just said before. So I know you can think on your feet. If only I had paid more attention. You know, I think of a country like India, which is the one I know best, much better than some of these other places. And I'm still in the longer term on that sort of long durée, kind of optimistic. These places are going through a really nationalist turn, right? I think they, under the current government in India, for example, we're seeing a severe risk to minorities in that country. And we're seeing a kind of attitude where dissent is being harangued and squeezed out. In some cases, dissenters are being actively hunted down or persecuted by the government in terms of the tax arrangements or their ability to leave the country to attend conferences. And it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. But I still tend to think that as long as the democratic institutions are robust and hold firm, as by and large they have done, we are still in a situation where these 
checks and balances are present, where the corrective mechanisms are still there, and the ability of these countries to sort of allow their growing populations to make their opinions felt is still going to be preserved over the longer term. I don't see a democratic collapse in these places. You know, even somewhere like we're talking about a country like Brazil on the cusp of an election, which ultimately an ultra right-wing leader with ultra-nationalist tendencies, as some might say sort of proto-fascist tendencies, is on the cusp of defeat. Not by any means a perfect liberal Democrat, but nonetheless, we see these corrective mechanisms in play. So I'm not worried that in 50 years, we're going to see large chunks of the world, your Indonesias, your Indias, your Mexicos, go in the direction of the Chinese model, despite all the failings of Western European and American capitalism and democracy. And my God, we've had a few. And in the American case, you guys are still going to go through a pretty rough patch over the next couple of years. I still don't see any real appetite in these other countries that the Chinese model has something more attractive or that authoritarianism, they will succumb to the temptation of that kind of alternative government. Am I being too optimistic, Yasha? What do you think? No, not necessarily. So let me make two different points here, right? The first, and I think it's important that we talk about China in this conversation. I've long had a sort of slightly glib line that, you know, the Chinese government works very well in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. Now, you know, in fact, it works only somewhat well in practice. We've seen, especially in terms of COVID, some of the limitations of the government. But what I'm trying to express is that the main reason why the Chinese model is not going to be the model that a lot of other countries follow is that it is absolutely unclear what that would mean. If you're sitting in Zimbabwe or you're sitting in Pakistan and you're asked, would you trade your current government for the Chinese government? I think a lot of people might say yes, because the Chinese government has been able to provide a lot of economic growth, has been able to lift lots of people out of poverty. And if people felt that they could get that, they would probably say yes. Now, if you ask somebody in Zimbabwe or somebody in Pakistan, do you want to give our cast of politicians the powers that the Chinese government has? And would you trust them to actually give you some of the positive goods that the CCP is able to maintain as a result? The answer is, of course not. We don't have 3,000 years history of bureaucratic meritocratic government. We don't have this strange communist party that has been lying around for you know 70 years that has some experience in governing, but actually has proven its competence in certain kinds of way. So what would it even mean for us to try and follow this model? And so that's why I think, you know, the Chinese model may inspire some amount of envy. The Chinese may be able to bind some other nations to it in terms of international relations. But it just is absolutely unclear what it would even mean for a lot of other countries to try and emulate that. It might work in Vietnam and a few East Asian countries, but by and large, this is not going to be a realistic thing. One other point I wanted to make has to do with what happens if democracy collapses. That's a point where I do think that the contrast between democracy and authoritarianism is a little bit too simple a lot of the time, which is to say that I care deeply about democracy. I care deeply if Jair Bolsonaro should manage to pull off a military coup if he loses the second round of the election. And that's at least a possibility. It's something that we should be worried about. I worry about whether Donald Trump might find some way of effectively stealing the 2024 elections in the United States. And that would be terrible. Now, I think there's a background assumption in these kinds of conversations a lot of the time, but if that happens, democracy is done. And that, I think, is probably wrong. It means that democracy has collapsed for that moment. It means that, you know, the most basic requirements of a democracy, that free and fair elections change the government, has been violated in ways that would be terribly consequential and terribly tragic. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that Brazil or the United States might not be democracies again 15 or 20 years from now. We've seen in the past that military juntas are quite unstable. So even if Bolsonaro manages to put such a regime in place, it would be very imaginable that 15 or 20 years later, Brazil could somehow return to being a democracy. And in the United States, you know, even if Donald Trump somehow manages to steal the 2024 election, it doesn't mean that Democrats might not be able to win a somewhat unfair or deeply unfair competition in 2028 or 2032. So I do think that there is this sort of potential, not a certainty, but a potential of long-run democratic resilience where you get a complicated back and forth between moments of competitive authoritarianism or moments of genuine autocracy, and then a return to genuine pluralism, or perhaps even on the best case scenario, a strengthened democracy down the line. That's not something to count on, but it's not something to discount as a possibility either. I think you're right. Look at Indira Gandhi's emergency in India in the 1970s, a very dark moment for Indian democracy, but one from which it broadly recovered pretty fast. And that was a real period of danger for the Indian government. And I also think the conversation we're having around this and the appeal of different models and the Chinese model in particular, I think this discussion sounds rather different now than if we'd had it when I last saw you in person, Yasha, which was pre-pandemic. And there's been a crisis of competence for authoritarian states as well. You know, the Chinese government is currently embarked on an absolutely lunatic zero COVID policy that is kind of causing havoc in its economy. It's also got huge structural problems stored up that are beginning to bubble up to the surface, for example, in its property market. And we're seeing that very, very clearly. And of course, the Russian government has been nothing but dysfunctional during the pandemic and then launching a disastrous war that is bungled despite putting huge amounts of money into its military. So the appeal of those alternative models, the sense that authoritarians can get things done more effectively, I think that that view comes out tarnished from the past three years as well, which shapes popular attitudes towards these alternative paths to democracy. Since I've asked you all the impossible questions, let me ask you one more impossible question. What's going to happen to China and its role in the world? I think that a great deal of that depends on what it does in Taiwan. You know, for me, China is a very impatient country. It felt like after the financial crisis, it emerged confident and then overly confident towards its neighbors in the South China Sea, in Southeast Asia, and then towards America. And while it would have done very well to continue biding its time, building up its strength, I could reel off military statistics. It's the world's biggest navy. You know, the amount of stuff it ships it produces every year outstripped a dozen European countries put together. It has leading capabilities in air defenses and all these other things. But the fact of the matter is, it isn't ready for preeminence in Asia. And yet its policy has been to come running out the gates, bullying its neighbours, provoking a balancing coalition, not just from the US and others, but also from Europeans. Let me tell you, sitting in the UK, but also looking at the European debates, we are saying stuff about China and the Chinese threat we would never have said three years ago. The pandemic has fundamentally changed our willingness to treat China as a systemic threat. You have the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, America, getting together as an informal balancing coalition. So for me, China has actually constrained its place in the world by its unseemly haste to come out as a great power and challenge American dominance. And I think if it decided to invade Taiwan, an action the risk of which has gone up considerably in the past year, I would say, are the indicators we've seen and the sense of the US being distracted. I think it would be a catastrophic war for the Chinese. It would ruin the global economy, but it would also completely change China's position in Asia. If it 
shows patience, if it plays its cards right, if it goes slowly and cautiously, it can do much better. It can build up a strategic alignment with small countries who want to play it off against America. And we see this with, for example, its inroad in the Pacific Islands, in the South Pacific Islands, where these countries don't want to be lectured by the Australians or the Americans. So I think a great deal depends on whether Xi Jinping is eager to cement his legacy because he's not a young man, right? And, and he's a leader for life, but he's not hes not getting any younger. But the point is, if he deems he needs to fulfill his legacy, and that requires ejecting America from Asia, reunifying, in his view, Taiwan with the Chinese mainland, I think he's going to wreck China's position and bring misery to his people. But if he can be patient, I think that China's position is going to be much, much more difficult to assail, particularly if US democracy becomes inward-looking, racked by domestic political problems, and then running a strategic contest with China is going to be exceptionally difficult. Xi Jinping is 69, so we were close to meeting late 60s, early 70s. Last question, Shash. What can Western governments and what can listeners to this podcast be doing to support Ukraine that they're not currently doing? You know, at a very personal level, I'm not going to say this is going to make a decisive difference, but I've been struck by the role of crowdsourcing in this campaign. There's a great website called signmyrocket.com, which you can pay like a few hundred bucks and some Ukrainian soldier will write your name on a rocket that will then be fired towards Russian positions. If you pay like a thousand bucks, you can have your name on a sort of bigger missile. And if you pay a certain amount, you can have it written on the side of a tank. So if there are any would-be sponsors out there for the Ukrainian war machine, you can play a direct role more effectively than you thought. I recommend not going to Russia after you do that. And I completely understand that people feel less than comfortable directly firing shells at the Russians as well. But on a more serious note, I think the important thing to remember is in February, I was guilty of this, Yasha, absolutely, of viewing the Russian army as unstoppable and thinking this was going to be an insurgency they might lose, but that the Ukrainians would lose the initial round. I was completely wrong. And every time the Ukrainians have surprised us, the rot in the Russian army runs very, very deep, profoundly deep. To me, this is a force that is not fixable in a few months. This is a deeply rotten force that is corrupt, doesn't want to fight, treats its soldiers like crap. I think Russia can lose this war. And I think the most important thing is to stay firm in the difficult winter months, knowing that if we get to the spring, if we keep providing Ukraine with arms, particularly as Europeans, because we have to step up, we have to absolutely step up and not let the Americans do all of the heavy lifting, because otherwise we'll get to 2024 and we're going to be in real trouble. But if we stay the course and we stay firm, I think that Russia can lose this campaign. Ukraine can win against all the odds. And that would be one of the greatest military triumphs since the 20th century. It would be absolutely historic, but it can be done. So my biggest lesson is avoid fatalism. Don't think the Russians can wait us out. The Ukrainians can never win. They'll never be able to dislodge the Russians. This can happen. And I say that as someone who was a skeptic in the summer, but now sees real possibilities of Russian defeat. Shashank, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Asher. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. 
This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.